yes? Yeah. Okay. Try, try, try leaving and coming back because I don't want you to miss this. This is. I've got. I've got. Um, well, I'll wait till they come back. Let's. Um, I've got some questions that are. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say about this. Um, um, Fred Francis, your picture's still not there, but um, it's, it's still not coming on. I've got know. some. I've got some questions that are a little bit troubling for me, um, and I I I want to leave most of our time for the end of John because I think we've, in my mind, we've covered the most important things about them, um, about the whole gospel. But I've got some what I think are not going to be easy questions to talk about, and I really want to give some time to us to do that. So, um, any prayer requests? I know, Pat, Pat, what's, what's, what's your friend's name? Her name is Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E. L-A-U-R-I-E? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, anybody else? Anybody else? Andy? I've got a, um, I got a note tonight. I haven't read it because I was too rushed, but I got a note from uh, um, Tracy. Tracy uh, oh, there you are. Um, um, good to see you, Fred. Glad the... I've got... Can, is your audio on? Uh, yes, we're, we're on. Oh, there, there's everybody. Okay, we're good. Okay. Terrence Master Gardener? That would be um, Debbie. Oh, Debbie. Terrence Master Gardener? Let's start. Anyway, any prayers? I, um, Pat's got um, somebody she's concerned about. Anybody else? Terrence Master Gardener. Debbie, if that's you, we, we have Hi. your look. Is that you? Yes. Oh, good. Can good to hear your voice. Can you not see me? Oh, no, there's on. not. I've got, there's a logo here, but not a image. There we go. There you are. There you are. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> um, yes, I, I do have a prayer request. Yeah. Uh, for my, my cousin, Carol. Carol? Who, Carol, yes, who was recently diagnosed with um, lung cancer and um, had surgery, and the surgery went well. But she is going to be going through a month's worth of chemo chemotherapy. I'm not sure what happened. Somebody's somebody's got a somebody have a phone thing on its that. Sorry, that's me. Um. Anybody else? Anybody else? Happy. Let's let's start. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um. Holy cow, the reading this morning. Woe to you. No. Um, the, God bless it, I meant to go on and I've just been rushing to get here. Um, Debbie, we, well, I don't know what to do. You've got a... Debbie, that's you again, that something's... I've got you on as Tarrant Master Gardener and also as Debbie both. Um, okay, it's quite a... Um, what was it? So my reading was the one about find joy in trouble. Yeah. 
God bless. I wanted to I wanted to take off from the readings this morning, and I'm sorry. I, I, um, um, in the last readings, the reading for the weekend, um, you all know, is was from uh, the Beatitudes, and it was wonderful because you you know all this that Christ was um, telling those people who are marginalized, who are outside of the established system, basically Jewish and Roman, that they were blessed those who were hungry, those who were um, in sorrow, those who were persecuted, those who were not liked. Um, he said blessed because in the kingdom all of those people who stand outside the respectable world, if I can generalize it like that, will know joy. And he followed up the, those Beatitudes by saying woe to those who are happy and wealthy and well-liked um, because um, they, they will be, um, they will lose those things because um, the point that I think that Christ is making is um, when people make those things more important than God, they're in trouble. Um, so it's, I don't, Christ is, the Bible is not asking us to step into a black-white mindset. It's not what it's doing. Um, to, to, um, to, to be poor, to be in sorrow, um, to be hated are not good things. Um, um, they're misfortunes and they're the cause of problems. Um, the point he's making, I think, is that um, that when people make wealth or reputation or um, things like that, um, more important than God, they're actually setting themselves up for losses. So, <clears throat> um, the gospel reading this morning was Christ speaking to the Pharisees who were asking for signs, and then he said, um, "They won't. They won't get a sign from him." It, it's a repeated um, concern repeat over and over again the disciples and the Jews and the Pharisees keep asking that he do something to prove to them they really want him to fit into their way of looking at things and here he's adamant in refusing them so what I'd like to pray for tonight is based on the readings um, that and the the first reading today was was making the point that we should always find joy in our tribulations, that God allows us to suffer as a way of testing us, to see where we are. The, the underlying meaning being, I think, that when we, when we allow the things of the world to become more important to us than God, our suffering will be greater. He's saying, um, make a place for these sufferings, these trials, because um, God allows them to test our faith um, and we should go into them with some joy. That's almost straight Boethius. The only difference is Boethius said there's no misfortune. The Bible is saying there's a joy in misfortune. So I'd like to pray for all of us that we be strengthened. I know this may sound silly, but I'm saying it anyway. Let all of us be strengthened in our faith. Increase in all of us the supernatural virtues, a greater hope, for us to hope when we have no reason, for us to have faith when there's no reason, for us to love when the reasons for loving have been taken away. 
help each of us to grow in those, um, help us to take a joy, to, to know that we're with you by our faith and our hope and our love in whatever tribulations we face. Um, let that be, please. Um, let all that we're doing together in this class deepen our faith, bring greater powers of understanding so that we have help from our natural world in our faith. Ask a special blessing for Lori. Um, watch over her in her recovery. Um, help her recovery to go well. Uh, most importantly, in her heart, let her heart be strengthened by her faith and her friendship um, with those around her, particularly with Pat. Um, let her know that there is a strength in her friends um, while she's going through this. And um, for Carol, um, sorry, Debbie, she's, she just underwent an operation, yeah? She's got lung cancer. Lung cancer. Um, uh, what to say? It's hard. Um, cure her, Lord, if this is your will. Um, let our prayers um, go to you, to her, for her. Um, cure her, help her. And if it's um, your will to do otherwise, um, let this be an, an occasion for her growing closer to you, um, particularly in her friends. Um, we do so much so often to escape tribulations, trials. The, the Gospels this morning are asking us to find a joy in them, not run away from them. So strengthen all of us, please. Um, um, ask for a special prayer for friends of ours, Justin and Abby. Abby's gone through surgeries. Um, they're trying to do everything they can to, to make it more likely that she can conceive again and have a child. And Michael and Megan, who are um, trying to conceive too. Bless both of them with conceptions. Um, they have these deep desires to have families. Um, answer them, please. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's pick up with dry salvage. I think we missed it last week because we were late. Um, I want to encourage everybody again, if, if you guys can all come on a few minutes early. I know sometimes things are pressed at dinner time, but it allows us a time to visit without um, taking cutting into the class time too much. There, there's a lot to do tonight, and I'm hoping we can... Um, finish soon, uh, sooner than we usually do. I owe you guys so much time, there's no way I'm going to make up for it, but um, I, I think um, I think this is going to be an interesting class. I'm going to put some questions to you guys that I think are going to trouble some of you. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Next week, we're going to start Revelation. What I'd like to do is this, if anybody has difficulties, write me a note. Don't don't pick it up right now. Next week what I'd like to do is start the book of Revelation, but just do some general stuff and start reading the opening. I just, I do not want to get into this too deeply because I just think it's a difficult work. Um, I'm glad we've done John because John's a preparation for um, Revelation. If that's not been clear up till now, I hope tonight we'll make it clear. There are symbolic levels of meaning in the Gospel of John that I think people read right past. 
they, they just read it too literally and miss. And if you've read Revelations or t thought about it at all, you know that it's steeped in symbols, in symbolic meaning. So it's not going to be an easy read. What I would like to do is start Revelation next week just to get us going and then take a two-week break for all of us. That gives you a break from me, which I'm sure you won't be sorry to have. And it'll give me time to to work on Revelation because it's it's not something that I've, I've not read it deeply. I've read it before, but it's so troubling in, in its levels of meaning that I don't want to go into this lightly. So what I'd like to do is start it, take a couple of weeks. It'll give you guys all a chance to read it, and then we'll pick up um, a couple weeks afterwards, okay? So that's the, that's the plan for next week. Let's <coughs> pick up with Dry Savages, the second part. Remember that the focus here is on the river and the ocean and water. Um, the dry salvages are a group of rocks off the New England coast. And um, um, he speaks in the opening passages about not knowing much about gods, but the gods are present in the river and the ocean and the water. And, and um, it's, it's a wonderful image because it's, remember, right from the beginning with the Odyssey and so many of the works that um, have taken the sea as a major image, the Odyssey, um, Pericles, um, Moby Dick, just to name a, a few of the ones, you know that the the image of the sea is an important one for literature. It, 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 it's not man's place. It's not where we belong at sea. But in so many works of literature, it's where we have to go to find ourselves. We have to risk a death. We have to go where we don't belong, where we're not at ease. We have to move past the structures of our civilized world to get out of them. Today we'd say get out of our comfort zones. Um, in order to encounter mystery, another world, the way that world impinges on ours, interacts with ours. Um, so Eliot is taking... Um, the, the sea and the ocean as images for this this third quartet. He says, um, just in a halfway through the first part, the sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices, often together heard, the whine and the rigging, the menace and caress of waves that break on water, the distant rote um, in the granite teeth. He goes on and on. And under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell, measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometers, older than time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake. This is presumably women whose men are at sea uh, making a living. And he ends it saying, the future futureless before the morning watch, when time stops and time is never ending, and the groundswell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. Section 2. Where is there an end of it? The soundless wailing, the silent withering of autumn flowers, dropping their petals and remaining motionless. Where is there an end to the drifting wreckage, the prayer of the bone on the beach, the unprayable prayer at the calamitous annunciation? Remember, I've mentioned this before, that Eliot, I mean, one of the... 
One of the remarkable things in Eliot's poetry is that he takes a whole tradition and carries it in. Even if you don't have that tradition behind you, you, you can feel its presence resonating. But he, ten, he tends to work off of images. He doesn't make simple declarative statements, or he rarely does that. He presents us with images and is trusting that um, we will know that there's some connection between those images and whatever it is that's tying them together. So here, bones, petals, um, the drifting wreckage, the, the bone on the beach. Um, so he's anchoring us in the concrete world as we know it, but he's also presenting those images in terms of another dimension of meaning. It's exactly what um, Shakespeare did in in Winter's Tale, and particularly Pericles, and it's what John is doing in the Gospel of John. There is no end but addition, the trailing consequence of further days and hours, while emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was once believed in, the, um, in as the most reliable, and therefore the fittest for renunciation. It's those very things that we depend on are the things that are we're called most to renounce. There is the final addition, the failing pride or resentment at failing powers, the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat <coughs> with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. Where is an end to them? The fisherman sailing into the wind's tail where the fog cowers. We cannot think of a time that is oceanless, or of an ocean not littered with wastage, or of a future that is not liable, like the past, to have no destination. Um, I didn't want to give this away, but be, remember we talked about Chaucer once? This is really important. Remember, we I, I so loved that class we did on Chaucer. Remember we talked about Chaucer's rhyming couplets, royal couplets, that each couplet rhymes. And I made the point that so many teachers treat the, his um, rhyming scheme as if it's artificial. It's just a gloss. You know, it's pretentious. And I suggested that wasn't true at all. That as a matter of fact, it was one of the most perfect ways of illustrating Boethius's principle. There is always order. God is always at work. Rhyming wasn't artificial. It's Chaucer's way of saying there is always beauty and harmony in our world. Um, so, remember I suggested when he was describing Arceta's death, and you've got this rhyming going on that's in some ways pleasant and a little bit comical, but it's taking place during a dirge, during a funeral. Because he's not letting us forget that we can't allow whatever's going on in the world to keep us from the joy, not of the world, not wealth, not pleasure, not reputation. Um, those things in the world so often keep us from seeing God, hearing God. Um, so the rhyme schemes are there. Notice what, notice what Eliot's doing. You probably wouldn't pick it up, but take a look. Can anybody tell me right now, before we go any farther, where the rhyme scheme is here? In section, in this section, in two, the first part of section two. 
wailing flowers, motionless wreckage, unplurable annunciation. There's no rhymes there, right? Wailing flowers, motionless wreckage, unprayable annunciation. Except look at the next stanza. Trailing hours, emotionless breakage, reliable renunciation. Look at the next one. Failing powers, devotionless leakage, undeniable annunciation. Is everybody following? The rhymes are there, but they're veiled. What he's doing is exactly what Chaucer did, except it's more subtle. What he's saying is, like Chaucer, there's this beauty and order, but you have to pay attention to hear it because you'll miss it. Let me stop before I go any farther. Is that clear? What Eliot's doing with the rhyme scheme. If you're not paying attention, you're not going to hear it. It's, so, it's like the clanging of that bell. You'll just hear it every once in a while, but it's there. The death knell, always there. The beauty and order, always there. Do we see it? Do we delight in it? Are we glad for it? I'll finish the section. Where is the end end where is the end of them, the fishermen sailing into the world, into the wind's tail, where the fog cowers? We cannot think of a time that is oceanless, or of an ocean not littered with wastage, or of a future that is not liable, like the past, to have no destination. We have to think of them as forever bailing, setting and hauling, while the north northeast lowers or shallow banks unchanging and erosionless or drawing their money, drawing sails at dockage, not as making a trip that will be unpayable for a haul that will not bear examination. There is no end of it, the voiceless wailing, no end to the withering of withered flowers, to the movement of pain that is painless and motionless, to the drift of the sea and the drifting wreckage, the bones prayer to death its God, only the hardly, barely prayable prayer of the one annunciation. It seems as one becomes older that the past has another pattern and ceases to be a mere sequence or even development, the latter a partial fallacy encouraged by superficial notions of evolution, which becomes in the popular mind a means of disowning the past. The moments of happiness, not the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security or affection, or even a very good dinner, but the sudden illumination we had the experience but missed the meaning, an approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form, beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. I have said before that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations not forgetting something that is probably quite ineffable, the backward look behind the assurance of recorded history, the backward half look over the shoulder towards the primitive terror. Now we come to discover that the moments of agony, whether or not due to misunderstanding, having hoped for the wrong things or dreaded the wrong things, is not in question, are likewise permanent with such permanence as time has. We appreciate this better in the agony of others, nearly experienced involving ourselves than in our own, for our own past is covered by the currents of action, but the torment of others remains an experience unqualified, unworn, 
by subsequent attrition. People change and smile, but the agony abides. Time the destroyer is time the preserver, like the river with its cargo of dead Negroes, cows, and chicken coops, the bitter apple and the bite in the apple, and the ragged rock and the restless waters, waves wash over it, fogs conceal it. On a halcyon day it is merely a monument, in navigable weather it is always a sea mark to lay a course by, but in the somber season or the sudden fury is what it always was. So that's section two of Dry Salvages. Okay, let's do the end of John. Very quickly, just a quick, ooh, God, did you start? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you did? Oh. They should be, check them, but I... I think they are, Doug, yeah, yep. Um, very quickly, um, one of the qualities that makes John's gospel stand out is what we've um, noted and what John would have called the logos. Um, that was one of the great contributions of the Hellenic world. It was there before Plato and Aristotle. It was in the poets, it was in the pre-Socratic philosophers. Um, the really serious thinkers in that time understood that there was a rationality to everything in nature. Nature had a meaning. Each thing, a flower, a tree, a river, just like Eliot's river. Everything had a meaning. God was present in it somehow. So a river wasn't just chaotic water rushing. There was a meaning to it. Um, and you know that the poets struggled to try to make that clear. That's why a river had a name, and it was named by a nymph, or a tree had a name, or um, mountains, whatever they were. So this sense of a logos permeates John. Um, you can't read him without feeling that no matter what's going on in the world, all these exchanges between Christ and these people, his disciples, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Gentiles, there's some meaning beyond what's literally present. One of the problems with the Jews is that they're too literal, too, too legalistic. They're too ready to condemn, to, to take literally before them as the meaning of things when clearly things mean more than they seem. There are these deeper levels of meaning and, and everything goes on. So over and over and over again, we notice that John presents Christ responding to a person or the disciples. It can be the woman at the well, the well, it doesn't matter. Nothing goes on without his taking the occasion to identify himself with his father. In him, his father is at work. So a whole divine order has been brought down into this world. It's what the Jews refuse to do. It's what all the ordinary Jews um, fly, um, fly to. They find in Christ something amazing. They go to him to be healed, they go to hear him, they go to learn. They want to understand more because he's making them realize there are things going on that they didn't see before. So there are all these multiple things going on and John, John is doing an amazing job of making us aware of it by the way he presents it. There's almost not a scene, an exchange between Christ and somebody else when Christ does not relate what he's doing to his father. His father sent him, 
you can see the Father through him. If you loved the Father, you would love him. If you loved him, you'd love the Father, you'd see him. And those people who refuse to see that don't love the Father. And that's, in a nutshell, the, the sort of whole of John. So he brings the sense of a Logos. Um, he is the light. So he's bringing light. That's why his explanations draw people. He's helping the, to understand things that they did not see before. They were in the darkness. He, he, remember, I mean, these are, all, these are all Jews. By, I mean, in large part, they're all Jews. They've had an understanding. They've got a tradition behind them. But Christ is bringing a light to reveal meanings in those things that people didn't see before. So uh, what's going on in John is radically different. If you take the four Gospels, Christ is bringing a light into the world that nobody's seen before. He's showing a light on the Father um, that nobody had seen before. So it's impossible to read John without seeing this, this logos, this light, being brought in the world, so we cannot, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's like the pagan world, the Hellenic world. You cannot look at a tree anymore, um, or the, um, the, I'm going to laugh at Debbie here if I can. You can't look at a tree in the world, you can't look at flowers, you can't even look at, at knitting together a blanket, you know, putting together, knitting something, and not see that there's a glory to what's going on in the world, that there is this light, this creative light at work in everything going on. And we see that probably most conspicuously, most visibly in the signs, the miracles that he performs. So we've gone through all of those, the, the turning water into wine, the healing of the blind man, you know, the walking on water, all of those, the, raise, the raising of Lazarus, and then Christ himself being raised. All these extraordinary things show, if I can put it this way, they all show that Christ is life. He calls himself the bread of life, who wants life, whatever, whatever life we want right now. If, if we value this life at all, we should be careful of what we're doing in everything in life, because if we let things become more important than Christ, we're going to lose him. But he's bringing light. He's bringing life. So his healing and not, is not the work of a miracle worker in the modern sense. It's God at work in the world. He's showing that he's the God of Abraham, the God of all the men who've gone before, who are with God. Um, he's the God of healing. He's bringing life wherever it's been deprived or wounded. Um, that's what he's doing. Okay, that That to me is the sort of I'm full of it. One of the important points that we've seen in doing the two Gospels, Matthew and John, is that, is that Christ is fully human, fully divine. Um, he says in Matthew, if you, if you looked at the notes, you'll remember this is, this is in Matthew 10. There's that passage where he commissions the disciples. And he says, um, I'll read it because it's really important. He says in 10, these twelve Jesus sent out, charging them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the um, lost sheep of the house of Israel, and preach as you've been saying. You know, he gives them the authority and power to take all this away. So he originally came for the chosen people, 
and it's clear from so many of the parables it's about the difference between the old covenant and the new the old covenant misread god the the parable of the prodigal son or the um, the parable and the wedding feast i mean all of those um, so many of the parables keep setting the old covenant against the new and showing that um, he came to bring the chosen people to fulfillment, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. But just as they did with the prophets before Christ, they're doing with him. They've rejected them. They're taking this legalistic way of reading, reading the world into what they do, and they miss him. They don't see him. Um, so we get these instances of Christ um, going to the Samaria and going to that well and, and having that exchange with the Samaritan woman where she asks um, for the crumbs and Christ almost scornfully says he didn't come. He did not come for her. It's almost a scorn if you go back and read that. It's, and yet she she's um, fearless. She's so full of spunk. I mean, what can you say? She's absolutely fearless. She said, even the dogs get fed crumbs. I can't remember the exact words, but you you know the crumbs passage. Even, fall from the children's even the dogs get crumbs. And Christ is astonished by her faith and heals her. And it seems to me it's one of those scenes in which we see him getting drawn out. The same thing happened at the wedding feast when... Mary says, there's no whining. He says, woman, what have I had to do with you? My time's not yet. Or on the cross when he says, why have you abandoned me? There are these instances where he is fully God, fully human. And I, I um, tried making the point last week that if you look at the heresies in the early church, the heresies tended to um, crystallize on one side or the other. They would either try to make Christ less human and divine, or um, more human and not divine. When all the church fathers realized, with whatever inspiration that they received from the Spirit, that he's fully both, and it's absolutely crucial to see him fully both. Um, it's easier to explain him one way or the other. That's why people do that. It's easier to see him one way or another. It's much harder to see him fully as a paradox, because then what he does is bring this this amazing thing that, that is full of intelligibility, it makes sense, and yet it's full of mystery at the same time. Um, so we talked a little bit about that. Um, I just suggest one thing when you think about it. Set the water of life discourse, that exchange be uh, between Christ and the Samaritan woman, where he, where he offers life itself and she wants it, and set that discourse against the discourse that follows shortly afterwards when um, Christ calls himself the bread of life, that he is um, life itself um, and offering it to everybody. Um, okay, that's just quick review. What I would like to do is go quickly through the chapter and just read some of the passages just to... Um, to reinforce what we did, to pick up what we did last week, but I really want to get to the end of this gospel, so I'm just going to rush through some, some passages here, okay? In chapter 15, Christ describes himself, as you remember, it's where we left off. He says, I am the true vine. It's one of those I am again. 
I am, I am, I am, um, I am before he comes after Abraham and David, but he says, um, I, I am after them, but I am. Um, he was there before. Um, he describes himself as the true vine in 15. I am the true vine. My father is the wine dresser, vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. If we're not doing something to bring the kingdom here, he's not going to make an opening for us. That's his call to us. If it go down a little bit, if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burn. This tendency to Christ to see Christ as this buddy, this nice guy, full of compassion. I mean, it, it just makes no sense in light of what he says, because repeatedly we've encountered Christ in these passages where he casts somebody out or puts them in the fire. Um, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done. By this my Father is glorified, and you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice again, there's that, God, it's just, I can't stress this enough. Um, there's the Old Testament to, to keep putting Christ the way the fundamentalist does, as if he's this buddy person, and um, completely severed from the old world. The Old Testament is absolute absurdity. John begins, John begins his gospel by saying, those who follow his commandments. And here Christ is saying it himself. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. How could, how could he love his Father and be obedient if he did not honor his commandments. Christ does nothing to hold himself to the 613 observances of the Jewish law. He does not. Um, he walks through them, but he never once abrogated, went against, undermined his father's laws. Um, you are my friends, if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. He's made them understand him over and over and over again. It was one of his great tasks to help his disciples understand. The servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you to love one another. Um, so he's repeating what he's doing before here in 15. He makes clear that he's going to send the counselor at the very end of 15. They hated me without a cause, but when the counselor comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me, and you also are witnesses, because you've been with me from the beginning. That's as clear a statement from Christ that God picked up in the theology of the Trinity. The Father begot the Son, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. 
The Spirit is not another begotten Son. There's only one Son, because Christ or God has only one image of Himself. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. In that passage, we're given the whole theology of the Trinity. 16, I have said all this to you to keep you from falling away. He knows the danger that so many of us can get loose and the world can take us over. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Another exact description of what's going on. They will do this because they have not known the Father nor me. So in spite of all of the worshiping these people did, going to, going to synagogue, like us going to Mass, um, in spite of going to these services, it did not help them because they did not live it. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to leave you, he says. Um, and he says, um, go down a few lines in 16. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I'm going to offer a thought on this. And I, I'm hoping, I'm trusting, I'm with the center of the church here. Um, Christ in his present is um, limited in time and space. You know, he's... He's given what he could to his disciples and sent them out to all nations. That was their last commission from Christ. If the Spirit comes and it's the Spirit of Christ, he's not bound by time and space the way Christ would as a human being. Because in his human nature, he was bound in time and space. He was there. He couldn't be all places at once. But there is no way for the Spirit not to be able. The Spirit is here and there. He's here answering prayers here. He's on the other side of the world answering prayers there. So he's carrying on the way the way of Christ, but doing things he couldn't. That, I think that's why he says, nevertheless, tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Or if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. Um, but if I go, I will send him. He, once again, he affirms the role of his father. Um, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, this is the Spirit, declare to you, all that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Spirit brings is from the Father carrying Christ. It's another affirmation of the Trinity. Um, 17, or at the very end of 16, um, he's preparing his disciples to leave because the you know that the passion is um, imminent. I have said this to you that in me you may have peace. Um, in the world you have um, you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's why we're asked to be glad in the face of trials. Seventeen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, since thou hast given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they knew thee and only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, Father, Glorify thou me in thy own presence. He will be with him 
with the glory which I had with thee before the world was made. To, to read John and get stuck on a literal level and not understand that there are there's this whole other dimension before the world was even made, this whole eternal dimension being called into Christ and everything that's going on is just not to read John. Um, um, he keeps affirming him again, and that you you know in 18, he goes into the garden, Judas betrays him, Peter cuts off the ear of the guard, and he's taken to the Jewish high council. Um, it's there that um, Caiaphas will question him, and um, will <laughs> will get offended because Christ responds to him when Caiaphas asks him who he is and what he's doing, uh, who his disciples are, and Christ says, I... Everything I've done has been visible. You've seen it. And one of the one of the officers hits him, strikes him, um, as if he's being disrespectful to a high priest. The great irony, I mean, I'm trusting everybody's reading. The great irony here, these are priests of God's law. These are priests. Christ is the high priest. I mean, if, if they didn't get it then, there's no way you can miss it after Paul, because Paul said he's the lamb, the priest, He's the one overseeing the sacrifice, and he's the sacrifice himself. So ironically, while, while, while Christ is saying this to Caiaphas, who's the high priest, and the guard strikes him, because he seems to be disrespectful to the high priest, he's striking the priest. He's hitting God. He's so the world. He, he doesn't even see um, that the world has got him. Um, um, they send him to Pilate, you know, and Pilate questions him. Um, this is 18 in the middle, um, and because he's being accused of, of calling himself God and going against the Jewish law, the quite, um, Pilate says, um, are you the king of the Jews? Um, you know Christ's answer. Um, am I a Jew? Your own nation amid the chief priests have landed you, handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from this world. Pilate said, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for, th for this I was born. And for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Every one who is of the truth hears my voice. If they do that, they're going to hear the Father in Christ, the Spirit in both of them, and they'll have a reason for turning from the world to bring Christ to whatever it is they do. Even, even and this is his words, even if they don't like him. <clears throat> because remember in the Beatitudes, um, blessed are the poor, um, blessed are the, um, the persecuted, blessed are those who are hated, because lots of people are not going to hear, want to hear what Christ says, <clears throat> or his disciples say. <clears throat> the scourging takes place, you all know it, so I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pass on this. If, um, 
Let me stop here because I want to get to the very last two chapters. But I don't want to preempt any. I just want to close in. Does anybody want to cover anything that I've missed? Um, I know I'm going over the passion. I'm trusting everybody knows it well. Um, I really took as the most important thing about John is getting to this quality that I've been talking about now for a couple of weeks. Um, you know that everything that happens is according to scripture, so um, he's um, scourged, he's um, taken um, because of the rite of that ceremony that's going on. Um, the Jews come and ask to break the legs of the three um, crucified people and they get to Christ and he's already dead and so the, the soldier um, lances him with a spear and blood and water come pouring out of him. Um, they take the body and, and then take it to the tomb. Um, so I want to go on to the last, but I don't want to skip over this because I know this is important. If any of you have any, any concerns or questions or observations, things here. Pat, I don't know why your your the uh, the the camera is so blurred on your picture. Oh, there you go, coming into focus. No questions. <clears throat> okay, here <laughs> here we go. Okay. Um, you know that Christ was betrayed by Peter three times, and Christ prophesied that he would. Um, Christ is crucified and then he's taken and buried in the tomb, okay? Um, I want to read a little bit of um, from chapter 20 and 21 because I want all of this to be concretely in everybody's minds when we take up these questions that I want to deal with, okay? Chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away. She ran and went to Simon Peter. You know that she goes to get Peter, and Peter and John run back to the tomb. And it describes them as running and said and says that John ran faster than Peter. Now hold on, because you know I've, I've already said that there's something strange going on in John because he brings in this, this metaphysical dimension. Um, so we have to be careful. We don't get anything from Christ in this passage. Throughout John, we keep getting Christ saying, I am, I am, I am, bringing this, I, this experience of the Logos, this understanding of the Logos into what he says. We don't get anything like this. We just get a description, a report, like a, like a reporter, a newspaper reporter describing what happened. So Mary comes. He's not there. She goes back. Um, she um, speaks to Peter. Peter and John or the, the one whom Christ loved, run to the tomb. Okay? And then it says this. Um, um, the other one got there first. Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying and the napkin which had... Sorry. Hold on. Sorry. Um, the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
So something happens here that's unexpected, but apparently there was some understanding that took place here. So they go back to their homes. Um, verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, they stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus laying, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Um, she said to them, Because they um, have taken away my Lord, and I do not where they've laid him, saying that she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was him. Um, um, she suddenly realizes that in, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So she did that. Now, it's, it's described then that Christ appears to the disciples three times. It, it actually four, but it says three, so there's a discrepancy there. He comes to what's in the room and says, Peace be with you. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Thomas wasn't there. Um, eight days later, it says, his disciples were again in the house. This time Thomas is there. That's the second time. He puts his fingers in the holes and seeing, he believes. My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And he performed other miracles um, that John doesn't include here. Chapter 21, the beginning. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of, of Tiberias. Um, <clears throat> so um, this is when they were fishing and he calls them in and they make this great catch. That's the third time. Once with the disciples, another time with Thomas, and this third time. Chapter 15, when they finished breaking fast, or no, wait, just before chapter the... Chapter 15? Chapter, chapter, um, 21. We're still in 21. Um, Christ calls them to the shore, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him. So it was so with the fish. This was now the third time. So this is the third time um, when they're fishing. While they're there, Christ puts these words seriously to Peter. He says, do you love me? He does that three times, and after each time when Peter says, I do, he's, he says, feed my sheep, feed my ship. And the third time, Peter's getting irritated. He Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved <coughs> because he said, <coughs> Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. He's God. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God, and after this he said to him, Follow me. 
<clears throat> Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved. The assumption is it's John again, once again. Remember, John was the one that um, was described running to the tomb. He's not named. He doesn't, he doesn't say in his narrative, this happened, this happened, this happened, Peter was there, and I was there. Describing himself, he says, the disciple whom God loved. And he does it again here. Um, <laughs> this is interesting. Um, Peter turned and saw John following, who had lain close to his breast at the supper and had said, Lord, who's, the, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, um, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is it to you? He's expressing his disapproval that Peter's letting his curiosity become more important than following Christ. And it's a sort of mild rebuke. What is this to you? Follow me. He's just said three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Follow me. Um, the saying spread abroad among the brethren that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. This is John closing off saying, this is a first-hand eyewitness account. It's, um, it's real. I was there to see it. But there are also many other things which Jesus did where every one of them were to be written, I suppose that the word world itself could not contain the books that would uh, be written. It's the first time that I recall that he uses the word I, <clears throat> so he brings it to himself. Okay, here's, I've got a, um, several questions here. Um, a couple of things, if we can take them one at a time, but let me let me get them all out and then go back if I can and try to take them in some order. You know in the Gospel of Matthew, um, the, the, the tomb scene is described with um, the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, running to the tomb. When they get there, an earthquake takes place. The earth is shaking. And an angel descends and talks to her. Okay, That's Matthew's account. In John, there are no, not two Marys, there's only one. Mary Magdalene comes. Um... And she goes and tells the disciples, and they come, they enter the tomb, and they don't see Christ. Neither one of them does. Mary stays weeping. She is the first to see Christ, not the disciples. So let me take the first question first. Any, anybody want to comment on the discrepancies? Because this, these are the sorts of things that lead critics, these, particularly the modern you know, new scholarship um, critics, to cast doubt on the Bible. You've got very different accounts. In some ways they contradict each other. They seem to cancel each other out. So, any thoughts on just that? The, in Matthew, two Marys are described as going to the tomb. In John, there's one. In Matthew, the, when, the, when the two women arrive, there's an earthquake. And... Um, and um, let me read it just so you have it. Um, 
This is 28 at the very end, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the sepulcher, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. Remember, he sends him off, or her off, and she meets Christ on the road. Christ will come to her, and he will tell her to um, go tell the disciples. So an angel descends. There's an earthquake-like experience, light that's blinding in some ways. Um, and he tells her, um, I know who you're seeking. He's not here. He's risen. Go quickly tell the disciples. That's not the way John describes it. So there's two very, very different accounts. Any, any, any thought, oh, here, let me put it differently. Let me, is there any reason to believe this right now? You've got two people to tell me very different stories. Is that enough of a reason not to believe? What do we do with this? Barbara. You know I've missed you. You know that. I hope you do know that. you have any thoughts on this? Any thoughts? My thought is that Matthew wasn't there. And so, <laughs> he, can you hear me? Yes, yes, loud and clear. Matthew wasn't there, but John was. So, maybe secondhand information, although it is, it's, it's confusing to people who read the Bible, I mean, that there's a there's a difference. <coughs> I'm signing out. No, no, don't sign out. Please don't, don't. Stay, stay here. Debbie, you look, you look troubling over this. Well, I think Barbara's right, and I'm hoping you can hear me, because honestly, uh, um, there's something not right with my computer, and I I we can hear. I can. Can everybody else? I can hear. It's a little bit faint, but I still hear you, Debbie. Go ahead. You're fine. Oh. Oh, okay. Um, I think Barbara's right. I think that one. We all know that when things are retold, they're retold very differently often than what the way they happen, and so people see different things, uh, and are. Uh, their recall is different than someone who has actually been there. Even the person who's been there oftentimes sees things that someone else who is there sees a little bit differently because it depends on what you're looking at, what you see. Yeah. So I, I, I don't see that there's... Um, I, I, that that you can say that, well, one is wrong and the other one is correct. I just think it's two different things that are happening. It's not two different things that are happening. It's that two different people are seeing them in different ways. One is getting information from a party, and the other person is seeing something as they see it um, at that time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that there's um, necessarily a dichotomy. Yeah. Anybody else? 
Anybody else? Karen, I hate to disrupt your beach experience here. <laughs> God, <laughs> we're talking about the apocalypse, and you got a beach behind you. Karen, you have you have any thoughts about this? Do you have any thoughts or anything to add to what Barbara and Debbie have said? Debbie, I've got you down twice, and I want to make pit I want to make room for another picture because I've got you down as the Tarrant Master, and your image is there. But I've got you down as a logo, and I'm going to try to remove that. I hope I so hold on here. That may be one of the reasons that your voice, yeah, there it came in clear. Um, we'll see what happens. I don't know, but I'm glad I didn't lose you. Um, okay, I've got a I've got a second question that to me is goes more to the one of the difficulties at the end of John. Um, this is a very different... It's funny, you're, it says you're wanting to get in again as you're as a, under Debbie. Um, should I just... Oh, I don't... Anyway, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ignore it. The problem is trying to eliminate the other one because I can't... When you eliminated me, I couldn't see anything in it. Oh. That I needed to read from it. Can so you I, can you get rid of the Tarrant Master Gardener? Can you get rid of the Tarrant Master Gardener, that identity, the and just come in as one? Oh wow. I didn't realize it was coming. I have a new computer and it could be, be that's the problem. I don't I Yeah, don't let me let's let's leave it because I wanna um Here's the other, here's the second and more interesting question for me. When John describes the this last episode at the tomb, he describes Mary Magdalene coming and not finding Christ, and then going back and the disciples running. So his his description is um, not the way Matthew describes it at all. He describes Peter and John running to the tomb, and he's very clear about this. John outruns him. He's running faster than Peter and gets there first and does not go in. When Peter gets there, he doesn't hesitate. He goes in. After he goes in, John joins him. They don't see Christ and they leave. So neither disciple sees Christ then. The only person to see Christ then is Mary. And I want to take this one at a time. Um, Jesus says, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, she said, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm sending to my Father. Mary Magdalene went, I mean, she tells him, and you know everything that follows. So there's a number of things. Let's take that first. Why is that in there? What does Christ mean when he says to Mary, when she touches him, because she turns around and sees Christ, and it's for him that she's come. And he says to her, um, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them. And so he sends them to do that. Why does he say that to Christ, or I mean to Mary? Do not hold me, I'm, for I go... Um, 
do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Fred, you've got that big smile on your face again. Do you have Do you have something here? Uh, I, I don't know that I have anything particularly profound, but I guess one of the questions I've always had is, you know, wh what is it exactly that happens at the moment of death when the soul is finally separated from the body? Does the soul immediately return to be judged? Or, you know, what, what actually happens? And I guess the... The theoretical scientist in me thinks that perhaps this is 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 Mary appearing at the moment when whatever it is that happens happens, and he hasn't yet returned to the Father, and he's he's telling her, "Don't hold me. You know, I I have I have some place to go. I'll talk to you later." <laughs> Doc, do you have a thought? What's I. Can you all hear, Suzanne? I don't think I have a thought. I've wondered about it a little bit. Um, it seems to me that there is something different about him. Um, he, his humanity is complete, and he died, um, but he was raised again, and I don't know if that's if, if that's a different if his body and soul connection is different now. Um, he hasn't returned to the father yet, so he hasn't completed his journey. Um, but I don't know. I have I've wondered. I don't know. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody? When I read that, I don't think of it as a physical holding on to somebody. I thought it was more um, telling her she needed to let go of him so that the spirit could come. Not that she was physically holding on to him. Yeah. Yeah, my own thoughts are more along those lines that um, she has to let go of him, that um, she, she can't orient her life according to the way it was before. Debbie, I've got you twice again <laughs> on the Don't screen. Worry about it. Um, but two pictures now. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry. I thought I I had eliminated, <laughs> but I see I'm frozen over. One okay. Of these okay. <laughs> anybody? I figure it out. Anybody and, else? You know. Yeah. Any, I am so technically disadvantaged. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all are. Anybody else on this passage with um, Mary Magdalene? Bob. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. You know, I'm generally pretty simple in things, and I always roll back to Jesus says, don't touch him, don't touch him. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> Not the man you want to argue with. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're right about that. If Jesus says, don't touch me, you don't touch him. Although, they're, you know, I, I was so glad for that conversation we had, that discussion we had once when... Um, Fred raised that question about what, how we would understand when Christ said, "Unless you, unless you go through me, you don't get to the or 
unless you go to the Father through me, you won't see me, and because that was a hang-up for so many people. You have to be careful of being too literal, you know, because uh, particularly with John, because there are multiple levels of meaning here. Um, but I think, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended the Father, is, I think, in some way saying to her, don't hold on here because there will be a change when I go there, that it's important that she see um, that a change has taken place. Um, I thought um, Suzanne's way of describing them, that him, that he's different um, after the resurrection. Um, okay, I want to get to this question because to me it's it's the most troubling of, of of the things that go on here at the end. Why does why does John present the two disciples running to the tomb? Why does he make such a point that John gets there first? He runs faster than Peter, stops at the tomb. Peter goes in first, and then John follows him, and they don't see him. And Mary, who's outside weeping, will see him when they leave. Do we just say literally? That's it? And, and you know right now it's a pointed question because I've been trying to reinforce this point all along. We have to take literally true what John says. But we know in John that there are these different allegorical meanings. I think I got those in on the notes. I hope I, hope I got them to you. If not, I'll, I'll, I'll rework the... the um, I, I have to go back over the notes because I got them to you so quickly. But let me, let me just quickly remind you. In Dante, this is just good patristic um, exegetical principles. It's a way of understanding the world. Remember in Dante there were four levels of meaning. Remember, the literal, this is literally what happens. Dante's at a mountain. John and Peter are on the way to the tomb. There's an allegorical meaning. The patristic writers could not read a passage without seeing whatever was going on in terms of those four levels of meaning. There's the literal level. Um, included in that is an allegorical. The allegorical means... An old way of passing, a new way is coming. The tropological was immoral. This is what we ought to do in this moment. And the anagogical was the highest. That um, This is the final cause of things. Eternally, this is what's going on. All four of those levels are taking place at every moment in our lives. So it, let me give an example. We did this when we did Dante. Literally, we're all here talking with each other. We're present to each other. Allegorically, something's happening, or spiritually, you can put it that way, to each one of us. Either we're giving in to an old way of doing things that's keeping us from Christ, or we're moving towards a new, something, something happening um, that's new. In our church, they would call it an ongoing conversion. Conversions are always taking place. We're, we're leaving an old person behind and struggling to become the new person in Christ. That's the allegorical. There's the literal, here we all are. The allegorical, we're moving away from an old, hopefully to a new. The tropological, or yeah, um, is what ought to be. What ought we to be doing at this moment? We ought to be understanding things. We should be struggling to understand what's going on in this text. 
and we ought to be following Christ, doing what he said. And um, anagogical is the ultimate, um, the final ends of things. Um, that we're doing things with this ultimate end in mind. So the patristic fathers, the church fathers, could not read a passage. Um, um, I, in the notes that I've given you, um, I've given you um, references to St. Thomas. If any of you have had Peter Kreef's book, you can take a look at the very opening. It's, it's in the Summa first part, the first question, and it's Articles 8 and 9. The first part of the Summa, it's the very first question, and it's Articles 8 and 9. Thomas is dealing with um, theology as a science, and he's also dealing with this question, should scripture ever use metaphors, figurative language? And his answer to that is obviously yes, because Christ did. Christ used figures all the time. Anyway, take a look at that, because I, I think it'll help clarify the meaning of this. But um, the question that I'm asking here is, um, literally what's going on is the two disciples run. John outruns Peter. John gets their stops. He does not go in. Peter does go in. Neither one of them see Christ. And they leave, and Mary Magdalene is weeping, and Christ speaks to her. She's the first one to see Christ. Now, what does all that mean? We know that literally what happens. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, what does it mean? Because remember, the church fathers, this is St. Thomas, St. Augustine, they would, they would all deal with this question. In fact, they answer it. What does it mean? To me, it makes me think of the um, scattering of the seed on the soil, you know, rocky ground and the soil and um, versus fertile soil. So it's almost like Mary is the one who is who is the true believer, hmm. and the others maybe wanted to believe but didn't have the conviction at that point. Okay, here, boy, this, I knew this was going to get rocky. This is going to get tough. Um, Karen, you know that Christ gave Peter the keys. Mm -hmm. He's going to be Pope. So are you saying here that the first Pope was a person who didn't believe? No, it is, I'm not saying he didn't believe. But if you look at the next part where he says, um, let's see, feed my lambs or tend my lambs. Right, right. Ask them three times. Right. God, this um, is good. This is so good. <laughs> it seems like there's some doubts, not quite the right word, but um, it's almost like Peter has to convince himself. Or Christ has to urge him beyond a place Peter thought he'd have to go. You know, mm -hmm. when you were a child, you did this when you're... And I, Christ, it seems pretty clear, is looking forward to the martyrdom that Peter will suffer. Pe Peter doesn't see it, but um, yet. But Christ and does. What I, what I wonder in that series is, why does he start out with feed my lambs? And then it... Goes he, to he sheep, yeah. Sheep. I'd, you know, is there some significance to, uh, you know, are lambs more innocent 
young, younger. Okay, <clears throat> well, Peter denied Christ three times. Mm -hmm. So, um, I've always thought it was fitting that Christ wanted Peter to answer for each Three denial. times, yeah. The fathers would have said that too, that this is, mm -hmm. um, it's meant to be said next to the three denials. Um, it seems to me, or at least as I, I think there's some truth to that, but to me the most important thing about that is he, he can't do anything more to impress on Peter how important this is. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love I mean, if you wanted somebody to understand something, you'd push it again and again and again. And it seems to me it's really appropriate here because Peter's going to lead the church and he's, he's going to be martyred. Christ is saying, um, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And by the way, feed my sheep in view of a martyrdom means in some ways, be the bread of life. Put your life away and feed other people. Feed my sheep. Deny yourself, put your, be food, feed them. His martyrdom will be the ultimate sacrifice, the feeding of his flock. But what do we do with, I mean, any other thoughts on John getting there first and Peter coming after and going in first, and then both of them not seeing Christ and then Mary Magdalene seeing him? She's the first one to see Christ. Risen. Barbara, yeah, go. I, I always thought that the reason that John stayed <clears throat> aside and waited for Peter was because he knew that Peter was going to be the Pope or the head of the church. Wow. Now, <clears throat> why Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene first, I don't know, unless that was um, another reference to womanhood being important um, just as he of course his mother is important he was also saying something special about women but I just is the only uh, the thought I always had about John staying aside and waiting for Peter to go into the um, the tomb is that he had that rever uh, that deference to Peter because he knew Peter would be head of the church. Yeah. <clears throat> There's so much going on here, God. And you, I don't think we can read it if we don't have a sense of uh, um, of this allegorical level to things. Debbie, I, your your logo's up, and we don't have a picture, but it looks like your hand is up. Did you have... So don't even... Fight. I don't, I don't want to take time in your technical... If you can hear us, that's all we need. So if you've got a comment here, please... Offer it. Now, what? You're, you're going to think this is a little sarcastic, but what occurred to me is, um, and this is many, many years ago, I had to get in front of a fairly hostile group, and, and the reason I had to get in front of them is because I was a female, and um, what was said to me was, um, people believe women before they believe men. And so it could very well be that Christ knew that, okay, he told Mary, go tell them that you've seen me. And so that they would believe him or believe her. 
Um, it's a little, it's a little sarcastic. I understand that, but uh, the first time I was told that, um, I, I was in shock. I said, seriously, you know, you want me to get in, up in front of a hostile group of a hundred people and tell them this is what we're going to do, which I knew that that's what we were going to do. Um, and they said, yes, because people tend to believe women more than they believe men. So here is Mary Magdalene. She sees Christ and he says, go tell them you've seen me. And so I could be, it could, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he was, he, he understood what needed to be done. But at that time in history, weren't uh, women's witnessing discounted? Uh, that, that could very well be, but um, I, I, I don't know. I, as I said, that could be a little bit far-fetched. Um, but that when we were talking about this, that was the thing that occurred to me, is that women tend to have a certain um, measure of veracity when they, when they say something. Um, and this was only maybe eight years, nine years ago, which, and I was quite shocked that, that women's, uh, saying something, um, into a fairly non-believing audience would believe a woman more than they would a man. I'm not sure if it's a question of veracity or, or of, um, I don't even know what to call it, that, that, um, that, um, Men giving a place to women, women um, not necessarily because of. But I don't want to. I don't want to. That's too fine a point. I've got um, their hands going up here, and I don't know how to. Can those of you who have spoken take your hands down so that others, like Pat's got her hand up right now. Pat, you go ahead. But I don't know how well, to. Well, the uh, well, the only comment I was going to make is I was remembering the story of this. Wasn't it the Samaritan woman at the well where he was telling her and he told her to go into the town and tell them what mm. she now mm. believes? So mm. he was telling another woman. Yeah, funny, yeah. And it's interesting because so often he tells people not to tell because he knows if they do, he's going to be mobbed um, or, or among whatever other reasons. Let me offer you the thought of the Patristic Fathers because it holds a lot of weight for me. And, because, and it's also going to present a problem with reading, and you know that that's not a small thing here for me. The Patristic Fathers were generally in agreement on this. St. Augustine, St. Thomas, um, they, they rarely disagree in, in a black-white way with each other. If they disagree, they will they will nuance their disagreements because they have so much respect for each other. And they don't, they keep that respect alive in the spirit in which they talk about these things. So they're never rude or black-white. I mean, they're, they're very respectful and careful of each other. Augustine and I think Thomas are pretty close on this. The patristic reading is this. When, um, when uh, Mary tells Peter, you can imagine, I mean, my, my reading of this, Debbie, I'm, I'm not sure that this is going to um, confirm what you're saying. The disciples could not be, I mean, they've just lost him. They've, Christ kept saying something about returning and coming back. So they were all given hints that he would be there, even if they understood him imperfectly. He, 
he prepared them before this. When she tells them, they're, they are eager to go. So we don't, John gives us no sense that they had to overcome anything or, or be persuaded by the, you know, a woman. It's, they ran. They wanted to see Christ. The patristic reading is that John represents the Jews and Peter the Gentiles. They're both images of like the, the prodigal son or the wedding guest or all of those parables where Christ is setting up the chosen people and the, the, those outside the Gentile world. John is an image of the Jewish world and Peter's an image of the Gentile world. And um, in that sense, the fervor is greater because of that background in John. He brings this to And it's interesting to note, Christ favored him. He had this special love for John. He's, and it's interesting to me, in light of our work, you know, talking about his coming for the chosen people, that there's a depth and dearness there when, when their belief is real. John represents the Jewish people, so he's um, far more eager. It's, it's in him. It's a part of his long age-old tradition, ancient tradition. Peter's always known for his um, exuberant... Impetuosity. Yeah, good. That's the word, thanks. Thanks, that's exactly the word. His impet, you know, jumping in when he sees Christ walking and then drowning and, and I will never, you know, I'll never leave you and then betraying him. So um, Peter's known for his impetuosity. Got the, thank you, <laughs> Karen, for that. He runs in and... It's, a, it's an interesting, con- if it's true, I mean, even if you disagree, allow this for a minute because it's going to take me to another question. The greater reverence is on John's part, and I think wh- whoever said it a minute ago, or Barbara, that there's this respect and reverence on John's part for Peter because, um, because of the way the Jewish world had... Um, had not given itself completely and held back. The law functioned as a restraint. In so many ways it got in the way. Um, So John, in one sense, it can be described as being in that position when he gets there first and waits for Peter. His impetuosity, the, the boundlessness of his love or something. And neither one of them sees Christ. I, I don't I don't think this is a matter of either one of them doubting at all. They're they're racing to get there. They this is the Messiah. They love him. They've got news that he's resurrected. They fly. But when they get there, something symbolic is taking place. There's something symbolic in that gesture that both of them are showing each other. But neither one of them sees Christ. Mary Magdalene, who is a prostitute, a sinner, so you've got the old law, the new, the old covenant, the new. You got Mary Magdalene, who's um, in in and some of the recordings of her, the descriptions of her, I think she, um, Christ is described as casting out demons. That she, she was a sinner. A sinner. That's the church's, I think, presentation of her. She's a sinner. I don't think the issue here is a woman, although it may be more of an issue than I'm making out right now, but she's a sinner. The two men don't see Christ, and she does. And it's after she sees him that she goes back and says that. Even if you have trouble with that, that's the church's sort of general his traditional reading. Let me just leave it for a minute. If you want to disagree, wait one second. Here's my question. Um, 
In each of the Synoptic Gospels, we've got reports, descriptions, the same way we would get them from a reporter. We're supposed to see them as being trustworthy, that what they're describing actually took place that way. Um, John's not describing it that way. If this is not literally true, but it's John's way of bring, bringing, I mean, I, Barbara's way of describing it, I think, of bringing in another level of meaning to that tomb scene so that there's a symbolic level of meaning to what's going on. John has is the Jewish sensibility, Peter's a, a Gentile, there's they bring two very different sensibilities to this moment. Neither one of them sees Christ. It's Mary who sees him. Then is he is he violating what happened? Is he taking liberties he shouldn't because this isn't the way it happens and he cares more about a symbolic reading? Because we've got these discrepancies between the Synoptic Gospels and John. So once again, we've got four men in a corner. Something takes place in an accident. Somebody seems to be attributing motives in the way that they look at it. I mean, if I can put it differently, let's say all four men are secular non-believers. They don't believe in another life. And one or two of them are deeply religious, so they look at things differently. Will they see things differently? How are we to look at what John's doing? if in fact there is this symbolic meaning that John represents a certain sensibility, Peter another, and Mary yet another, and she's the one who is the first to see Christ, not the, not the Old Testament, not the Jewish, not the Gentile, but the sinner. Any responses to that? Because it has to go to this, what modern scholars are doing with it. That's the church reading. It's not modern scholarship. It's um, how are we to understand what's going on? Because what's going on in John is very different from what goes on in the Synoptic Gospels. Pat, did you have your hand up? It looks like your hand is on the screen. It, or if, if, did you have something? When you guys put your hand on, just make sure you take it off when you go back, because otherwise the hand stays up. Any any thoughts on this? Um, Barbara, yeah, go ahead. So it seems out of character. I'm trying to remember that old TV show where there was a detective, it was just, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that if John is... Up until this point, you know, here's what happened, then this happened, then this happened, and I'm going to tell you again, and then I'm going to tell you a third time, why is he changing um, how he's telling the story? Well, the interesting thing for me here is how he's telling the story, it seems to me pretty consistent. That is, there's, there have been all along these other dimensions of meaning in what's going on. He's, he's giving us things that none of the other synoptics give us. And he's giving us a symbolic, if, if in fact that's what's going on, he's giving us this other dimension of meaning in the way that he has before. It's, it's, so, much, it's so much more like him cons- in what he does consistently through, through his gospel than what the other synoptic gospels do. Mark, go ahead. Um, I mean, I read out of a Didache. 
so it's got a lot of notes in it. And it says, critical analysis makes it difficult to accept the idea that the gospel as it now stands was written by one person. And specifically, it says, John 21 seems to have been added after the gospel was completed. Yeah. It exhibits a Greek style somewhat different from that of the rest of the work. So th th there's that possibility as well, which is probably true. Expl explain it, that possibility meaning what? Market is your reading the, 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 the difference in the styles from 21 versus the rest oh, of, it, oh, yeah. of why he changed, of why it seems to have changed. Yeah, and in reference to your all your other questions, never bothered me. You got different viewpoints, you got different ways to look at it. I'm good with all of them. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, 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 you know, like my mother said, you don't ask these questions, be good with. <laughs> Because the end of the day, your answer doesn't matter. Oh, it does, Doug. Mark, when you say things like that, it just—it's outrageous. It does matter. No, listen, listen, Doc. Wait, outrageous. John. Wait, and, sorry. I know you don't like black and white, Bob. But in the end, it's black and white. It's heaven or hell. Have a nice day. There, there, there is no, there is no gray. Okay, our opinions don't really matter. Only God's does. Mark. That's it. Mark. Yes, you've said that now a number of times. I mean. I mean let me just, um, it does matter for this reason, for this reason. Christ did everything he could to make explanations clear. It matters enough for the church because it was only on the basis of that that the church could distinguish between um, truthful and erroneous understandings, that there were heresies. If you didn't have the church there, the church would break down because people could make it whatever they wanted, whatever whatever black thing. Black could mean different things to different people than white. It does matter. That's why the church is here. It wouldn't be here otherwise. Christ yeah, keeps making it wait. Mark. Opinions of those people, right or wrong? Mark. 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 Christ says repeatedly, I'm telling you this um, for your benefit so that you will know. Those. That's Christ. Wait, to, just to go with, to pick up with what Mark is saying, though, um, um, in 19, in 19, um, 19, about 40 or so, 35, it's about 1935, he who saw it is born witness, so this phrase anticipates the end, what Mark is pointing to in that last book, because some, some, the, the, the modern, Criticism suggests that the that the gospels are the reflect the work of different people and more people, and they're less certain about who the authors were. Um, but just to sort of deepen this, so that um, people have a lot more to think about here in John 19, about 35 or so, Christ says to his disciples, um, or no, he's I mean said, John says of Christ on the cross. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's saying this so we can believe. It does matter. He makes it really clear repeatedly. Without scripture, none of this is possible. It's, a, it's absolutely, by the way, to, to, to take this a step farther, it's absolutely crucial to get straight on this because all that I've said this before, all of the disciples knew that there were these voluminous writings on Christ. If you can imagine the religious mind going nuts on this, everybody making of Christ what he wants. Lots of them would be sons and mothers, 
Husbands, daughter, I mean, every, everybody. There were lots of writings. Luke made it clear. It's, remember when I read the beginning of Luke? He was attempting to straighten things out because there were so many writings giving different versions of Christ. It does matter. John is saying here, He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth that you may also believe. Because people believe different things, as you can imagine. For these things took place, not that Scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be, and it goes on and on, that once again, what's happening was Christ was fulfilling a Scripture. It was crucial to see that. Not only to bring the Jews in, who were reluctant to believe, but bring in Gentiles, who had no reason for believing. Um, some people will say that um, of John's last words, this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things because he was there, it was an eyewitness account. But there are also many other things which Jesus did where, where every one of them um, to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a reference to, the, I mean, that's the use of an I pronoun that, um, that John's not used before. There will be commentators who will say it doesn't prove or disprove that he wrote it. Um, it. It could suggest that he was an eyewitness relating this to somebody else who's speaking in John's voice. We don't know. We just don't know. My question has to do with this report. I mean, as it's a scribe, you know, if, if John is representative of the Jewish people and Peter the Gentiles and Mary is a sinner, um, does that mean John or the person, how, I'm going to call him John for the, for the sake of keeping this simple, does that mean John's taking liberties? Um, how are we to understand this? Because lots of people are going to make this into different things. The, the church has got a job that as I've, I've, I've said a number of times. It's constantly having to keep things straight because the church is in danger because of what people will do with these things. So any thoughts about that? How do we look at that? Is John faithfully describing what happened? Or um, is he taking liberties to make a point symbolically? Because that's in keeping with what he does? Doug. you here. Any last? Fred! Francis, we lost your picture. Are you there? Yeah, we're here. What? You have a response to this question that I'm asking? <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to like it. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I, my, my perspective on this is just totally different altogether. Uh, I think well, first of all, I thought we resolved once and for all that Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute. Way back, and I forget what year it was, and I forget what Pope did it, but he pulled all the Marys together from the Bible. Uh, Mary that was the prostitute that wasn't Mary Magdalene, um, the Mary that was the sister of Lazarus, and I thought the fact that it was all debunked finally, 
And the fact that we now have a Saints Day for Mary Magdalene was kind of the church saying, we got that one wrong. I always thought that Mary Magdalene was an extremely intelligent person. And she really got it before anybody else did. What, what Christ really was and what he was really trying to tell them. And I think, I think she had a very close relationship with Christ because of that. He realized that she got some things that, that Peter and some of the others hadn't quite all put together yet. And in fact, I read the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Hmm. And it, they used to, according to that Gospel, they used to take walks together and had interchanges that were more in-depth than he sometimes had with some of the other apostles. And so I think she saw Christ when the other two didn't because she understood what had, what had transpired, that it was exactly what he had been telling them. It, it took John and Peter... And it's like it was a it was a miracle, right? And it everybody wants when they witness a miracle, they don't all figure it out all at the same time. And I just think Mary got it first. I think John, because of the senior position with Peter, let him go in first and then followed. I don't think there's anything significant about that, but I think I think it is significant that that Mary saw Christ before yeah. Mary Magdalene saw Christ before everybody else yeah. did. Um, it's interesting that you'd say you didn't think I'd like the answer because actually I do. But let me let me just add what I do know about this because I don't think our positions contradict each other at all. As a matter of fact, I think they're they dovetail perfectly. Um, I'm not saying that um, her being a sinner in any way. Um, got in the way of her seeing Christ, what I would maintain, keeping what I thought was the traditional position. I'm going to come back to your opening comments because I'm not aware of a lot of that, but um, that it was in fact the fact that she was a sinner um, that made her able to see more about Christ in the sense that she would be far more appreciative, far more grateful because she was a sinner. I don't think the fact that you're a sinner keeps you from being bright or intelligent or more sensitive very often for for example if you if you think about any of the AA programs whatever they are whatever the addiction it's always the people who have gone through problems who tend to be far more sensitive and to that extent more able to see things very often than people who haven't suffered those things but um, my understanding of me I, I didn't know that this was resolved and I'm not sure that it I mean I'm, I, I don't I don't know if there's a consensus on the part of the church. I don't remember that discussion, but I'm not doubting it. But the medieval church, the early church and the medieval church, held Mary up as a saint, not because she hadn't sinned, but because she had. I mean, one of the arguments in, in defense of our church is um, one of the signs that our, that our church could have survived so much is that it's so, it's so much more capable than the rest of the world of making a place for sin and a greater love needed to answer it. Because the world tends to be self-righteous, um, pharisaical, um, you can say Jewish, it holds itself under a law like that so that when people don't 
conform to what they think people should do, people are going to condemn them. So the early church held Mary up as a, as a saint because she had been a sinner, and her conversion meant that much more. In the same way that it did for Peter, he betrayed Christ, and the same way it did for Paul, who persecuted the church. It's those people who are, were more in depth of sin who, who could see more. So I don't see the fact that she sinned um, as a reason for not giving her that place. It's the fact that she did sin and she had something that the two men didn't that would have made her um, more able to see him, um, to be the first one to see him. Um, I just offer that for anybody's thoughts. I mean, it's interesting to see that there's um, there's something going on in the way that John presents this that, that asks us to not just take things for granted, that something important is going on. Something's happening here in a way that doesn't happen in the uh, Synoptic Gospels. Any, any last or any more thoughts or comments on um, Mark, is your hand up? Your, it looks like your hand up. Did you did you want to say something? I particularly am fond of seeing Mary as a sinner, not not as a way of condemning her or putting limits on her, but as a, a way of saying exactly what everybody's saying that that she, it's for that reason that she could see more of Christ because Christ was offering. He said he, to the Pharisees, he came for the sinners not for the people who are well. Um, but that makes it sound as though the Jews and the Gentiles weren't sinners. That's, that's the problem I have with that. The only, I mean, yeah, I mean, Karen, that's good. The only thing that I would say, what, what, what I think that's wonderful about that is you can't make that black or white. If you look at, if you look at John as representing the Jews and Peter as the Gentiles, it's, there's not a black-white separation. There's a subtlety, a real nuance, difference. They're both there, they're running, they want to see him. One is respectful of the other, the other enters, both do, they don't see. There's nothing about that black-white. Or even between them, they, they're all there. Um, they want to see Christ, the way John's presented it. Um, but that's very different from the Synoptic Gospels. Mary's still there, she's still at the tomb, and she sees him. Um... In the other accounts, I think it, Christ goes and he sees them in the upper room. You know, he, um, he appears to them a, a number of times. She sees him here. So something is going on here that asks um, that asks us to not just overlook things and because it's so different from the other reports. I think if Mary's seen as a sinner, it deepens what goes on because it means she, she can see into depths of love and mercy and sin and the law in a way that um, the two men can't. Um, and there may be something, I mean, there may be something to the fact that she's a woman and add all of those things together and the, the two are the disciples, they've been educated, they know Christ, they're... Um, there's something in them as disciples. Peter's going to be the head of church. Christ knew that. As a matter of fact, those last words when he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, he couldn't be more emphatic. Peter, get ready. Um, you're going to you're gonna face real hardships here. 
I don't think there's anything black and white about that last scene with Mary and the two men. It's, it's a gathering of three individuals, all of whom love Christ in different ways and see, see him in different ways. Any more thoughts? Fred, did you have a follow-up thought on that? I didn't, I didn't disagree. I mean, for you to say, I don't think you're going to like that. I, there's nothing about that I didn't like. I like it. It's, um, I, I just, my own reading is that I, and it, I think it's pretty much in keeping with Tom, Thomas and Augustine, is that um, it, it puts her in a better light precisely because like Paul or Peter or anybody, um, her sins give her a depth. Um, she sees him in a different way. And, and and maybe as a woman as well. Um, Francis, do you have any do you have any thoughts? She's not gonna No, I just think you're you're saying well, I, you know, all of us sin, and Peter and John certainly sin. So, I mean, you know, uh, Peter denying Christ was a really big sin. <laughs> That's probably even bigger than some of the things that people have put on Mary Magdalene. And there was a whole lot of research on that, and, that, and that's why she was elevated to having her feast day. So... There was, we had this discussion with a, a priest friend of ours, too, that it was all uh, straightened out. Yes, and it no. was one of the pubs, Pope Gregory or something, that got it all mixed up. So Pope Gregory the Sixth, I think. Yeah. Kind of, because the, was it's the Mary, the unnamed Mary. Unnamed Luke, woman. Unnamed, unnamed woman in Luke that was the prostitute. And so when when Pope Gregory put all the Marys together, then suddenly Mary Magdalene became a prostitute. Huh. But there's huh. there's absolutely no history to support the fact that Mary Magdalene. Nothing in the book, the Gospels, that would support that Mary Magdalene was ever a prostitute. Quite quite the opposite. Boy, she she did have a demon that Christ drove out, but it had nothing to do with being a prostitute. Uh, so yeah. uh, you know, but. Like I said, we you know we've through our small community of faith that we did for years, we we did a lot of work on that one. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, just in light of the some of the questions we've raised together here, that to watch the church have to deal with these things and the way the secular world will attack it because of differences like this that come out and. Um, um, There's just our profound depths of meaning in all of these things. Glad for these. Any any last comments? Any last thoughts before we? Um, I'm going to send out um, a, um, something I took from the Jerome Bible that is an outline of the Book of Revelation. So. I'll send out a couple of outlines on the book of Revelations because it's a terribly 
complex book um, and it's highly symbolic I mean it's just a <laughs> it's just not easy to read because almost everything that's described is in terms of symbols so I'll send out an outline just to, um, for whatever help it can give you guys and us all of us so let's plan the week to meet next week and just start John and then take a couple of weeks off and and give us time to go through it and and then we'll meet and and I think we should probably be able to do John in in uh, maybe three weeks two or three weeks and then if we can arrange this I don't Tracy I didn't read her email I know she wrote I'd like to find a day when all of us can have a meal together and if possible arrange it so that Tracy can um, can make it because she'll have a, um, a drive. I don't know if that's going to work out, but but if we're going to if we're going to bring this to a close, I'd like to bring it to a close on a on a dinner and the dinner night where we get together and eat. So okay, um, you guys take care, be safe, um, <coughs> keep us in your prayers. We keep everybody in our prayers. So see you guys next week. Bye.